Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Jesse Chizeski K. And I'm Susan Wong. So, Susan, we should probably start out by introducing ourselves and what our plans are for this podcast. Yeah, let's do that. So, Jesse and I are two statisticians, and we want to bring statistics closer to you, or to bring you closer to statistics, whichever. Yeah, you know, big data or data science or machine learning. Or artificial intelligence. These are popular terms for related ideas, and we will eventually take a we will take a closer look at um, what all these things mean, how they show up in our daily lives, or where they pop up in some hot areas of research. Now, we should clarify that we're standing from a very particular viewpoint, because we're both in academia, and in fact, we're both in the same institution. But our goal is to give you a glimpse at what's going on, why people care, why we care, and why we're excited to be statisticians and or data scientists. It kind of sounds like we have an identity crisis. More on that later. For now, well, you can count on us bringing you a podcast at somewhat regular intervals about what's up with data. Susan, um, what should we start with? Well, it was just Thanksgiving, and I wanted to ask, how was your Thanksgiving, Jesse? Uh, I had a lovely Thanksgiving. It was actually the first Thanksgiving where I made the entire dinner. Did it include turkey? That's a really important question. <laughs> it did include turkey. That was pre-cooked by Costco. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, starting with turkey for your first full-on Thanksgiving uh, meal is quite ambitious. So very good that you took advantage of Costco. I, I did reheat it, though. That's kind of important. Getting it back to the right temperature is critical to making it taste delicious. Exactly. Uh, what did you do, Susan? Well, I was in Florida visiting family. Uh, no turkey for us. We've just always done Chinese food all the way, but it's a great excuse to get the family together so we all still enjoy it and have a great time. It sounds wonderful. So the reason why I mentioned Thanksgiving is that 538 recently published an article on the results of a survey they did on popular Thanksgiving foods. And what was most interesting from this article was not so much the what, but rather the how. Like how they actually did the survey? Yeah, so internally the 538 team came up with a list of 97 popular Thanksgiving foods and they put up an online poll where they generated random pairs of foods from this list. And then online users are asked to pick which one of the pair they preferred. So it's kind of like Tinder for Thanksgiving food. Oh, <laughs> Tinder for Thanksgiving food. So what did they find? Well, with a sample size of nearly 400,000, uh, that's matchups and not individuals, roast turkey was the highest rated protein, stuffing and mashed potatoes were pretty close in being top of the starch list, green beans and cranberry sauce were tied for top veggie. Cranberry sauce as a top veggie. I guess the term veggie was used rather loosely. Uh, what about dessert? It's got to be pumpkin pie, although I must say I personally prefer pecan pie over pumpkin pie any day. I like both. I happen to have made sweet potato pie with pecan crust for our Thanksgiving. From scratch, not with Casso's help. Indeed, from scratch. And it was, yes, it was quite delicious, I must say. You have to save me some next time, Jesse. I, I will do my best. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Susan, do you know what's happening this weekend? Uh, the first day of December, um, almost the last week of classes for us. Um, I guess there's several options here. Yes, I, su I suppose that's true. But perhaps equally important, perhaps more important, it's um, the, the four college football teams that make it to the college football playoffs will be selected on Sunday. Ah, that sounds exciting. So what happens after the four teams get selected? Um, so the four teams get selected, and then there are two semifinal games. Um, this year, the two games will be at the, um, the Cotton Bowl and the Orange Bowl. And then the college football playoff national championship um, will be on January 7th, and it'll be the two teams that win um, each of those games. That's a lot to look forward to, end of this year and beginning of next year. So how are the four teams selected? Ah, yes. So this is what makes the college football playoffs an interesting statistical topic. Um, so ultimately, the four teams are selected by the capital S, capital C selection committee. And it's currently chaired by Rob Mullins, who's the director of athletics at the University of Oregon. And, um, and then there are 12 other members. So the official statement about what um, about how the these top teams are ranked is based on um, this committee's evaluation of the various teams' performance on the field. Um, they also use conference championships one, um, the strength of the schedule, and then head-to-head -head results and a comparison of results against common opponents. So what you're saying is that the top teams don't just all play each other, because if they did, ranking them would be an easier problem. This is correct. In fact, um, many of the top teams rarely play each other during the regular season. So that's interesting. Uh, it seems like there are a lot of moving parts that go into the rankings. How does that all work? Um, well, the college football playoff rankings are released by the committee um, weekly, and that starts later in the season. Um, this year it was released on October 30th, which was week 10 of the season. Um, other organizations actually also rank the, um, the college football teams, but they're not formally used to determine who makes the college football playoffs. Um, for example, there's the AP or the Associated Press Top 25 poll, and that's based on weekly votes by 61 sports writers and, and broadcasters. So they just vote? Yes, they just vote. And there's actually another voting um, poll, which is based on, uh, it's called the Coaches Poll. And um, this is based on weekly votes of 62 head coaches in the Division I Football Bowl subdivision. Sounds like a lot of popularity contests. So do they use any analytics or any statistics? Um, as it turns out, there are a number of computer-based models that provide rankings. Um, there's this website called the Macy, or sorry, not the, called MacyRatings.com. And this website um, compiles a bunch of computer and voting-based rankings. Um, Kenneth Macy is actually a math professor. Ah, that's pretty cool. So we're offloading a lot of work to the machines. Uh, could you give us a sense of what ingredients go into these computer models? Sure. Um, one example is the ESPN Football Power Index. And what's interesting about this one is they're actually not so focused on ranking the teams, but more predicting 
the future performance of a team. And um, they end up simulating a bunch of, of future games based on past performance. Um, there's also a method that's um, called the Macy Peabody method, which I want to point out, it's actually a different Macy from the MacyRatings.com. And their method relies on four statistics, um, one for rushing, one for passing, one for scoring, and uh, one for play success. And then they try to find an appropriate way to weight these, um, these four different components. And they note in particular that they do try to focus on the play level data rather than game level data. So um, they focus on the individual outcomes of plays rather than the overall performance in a game. So it sounds like a lot of people are really busy right now making their predictions. And then the Supreme Committee will eventually make their decision completely independently. Yeah, this, uh, this selection by committee system is still relatively new. So it'll be interesting to see how their choices align with the various rankings. Sounds like maybe we should be developing our own ranking system. Yes, we should. Uh, maybe next year we will. <laughs> So, Jesse, did you know that we have an international prize in statistics? I did, but I can't say I know many details about it. So, this is relatively new, and quite honestly, I must have heard about it in 2016 when it was first awarded, but it didn't really get etched into my long-term memory. But this is a biennial award. So, awarded every two years. That's right. So, this is only the second time that they're awarding it. And uh, it's touted as the equivalent of a Nobel Prize for statistics, but it comes with a monetary award of just $75,000. So not a million, just $75,000. Well, that's, that's not too bad. Yeah, and I guess life is not just about the money. It's about fame and glory, too. Yes, of course. <laughs> so this year, the award was given to... Do we have a drumroll effect somewhere? Uh, yeah, we're going to need to get some real sound effects. Okay, well, we'll, we'll let it slide for now. Uh, this year, the award was given to Bradley Efron, and this is for his contribution of the bootstrap. This is so great. I feel like a lot of our students, even, even from our introductory classes, can appreciate the bootstrap. And Efron is pretty high profile. I mean, really, he's a statistical celebrity. That is so true. It is estimated that the bootstrap has been used in more than 200,000 peer-reviewed research articles since its inception in the late 70s, early 80s, and that's not just statistics papers. In fact, the bootstrap is helpful in a lot of different applications. Should we give a quick synopsis of why it's important? Yeah, so if we think of statistics as the science of quantifying uncertainty, and I think this is probably a generally accepted um, definition, one of the many accepted definitions for statistics. Um, traditionally, we've just had a restricted universe of things for which we could quantify uncertainty. The central limit theorem was the hammer we used on everything that looked like a nail. Yeah, the central limit theorem is like the fundamental theorem of calculus, but for statistics. It really is. I mean, you collect a sample of observations from a population, and no matter what the distribution of the population look like, you could reliably say that the sample means could be modeled by a normal distribution. As long as we had a 
large enough sample size. That is true. Well, you found the fine print, Jesse, as long as n is large enough. And this worked for any statistic that looked like a sample mean or a function of sample means. So you could use the normal distribution or even its cousin, the t distribution, to get confidence intervals. And these are numeric ranges for the population parameter that are credible given your sample. So if we were to estimate a population mean using our sample mean, the confidence interval quantifies the uncertainty in that estimate. Exactly. But eventually, much of statistics methodology outgrew the central limit theorem. There are a lot of things that we want to estimate now whose sampling distribution are really just not normally distributed. In comes the bootstrap, which makes use of this simple idea that you can take samples from your sample, um, and that's why this idea is called resampling. And doing resampling many, many times can paint a pretty good picture of the sampling distribution, which can be useful for... Giving confidence intervals. So in a nutshell, because of Efron's bootstrap, we can now quantify uncertainty in a broader range of settings. And I'd say that's a pretty important contribution. I agree. Thanks for listening to the very first episode of Data Bytes. If you have any suggestions or comments for us, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. We look forward to hearing from you. Till next time. Bye.